0: Life is full of surprises. That first time we saw that little blue line appear on a pregnancy test 25 years ago and Chuck and I looked at each other and said, what have we done? (laughs) Chuck's my husband, by the way. (laughs) The year my brother and his wife surprised our three little kids with a chocolate lab puppy for Christmas. The first time I stood up here 15 years ago to teach and didn't pass out or wet my pants from fear. Happy Easter for that visual. Good surprises are what make life rich and interesting. But life is full of hard surprises, too. When I was about six, I brought a picture for you to appreciate the story. Thanks, Mom, for the very first asymmetrical haircut known to man. Don't tell me you're not jealous of that. When I was six, I had a little box turtle that I had creatively named Earl May because that's where I bought him. And one day I thought to myself, I bet he's cold from living in that cold water all day, so let me warm him up by putting him in hot water. And lo and behold, I killed him. And my mom tried to bring him back to life by running him under cold water, but there was no resurrection for Earl. I'm sorry, parents, you're going to have to process this with your kids later, but I boiled my turtle to death. That was a surprise. But there are grown up hard surprises too, aren't there? That phone call from my parents almost one year ago today when they told me that my 17 year old niece had suffered a major brain hemorrhage on the soccer field. Some of you know what a phone call like that feels like. And I want to thank all of you from Orchard who have prayed for Liza over this past year. That bad surprise has turned into joy. As Liza will graduate high school next month, and she is very much alive. Life is full of surprises, some good and some so hard. And that very first Easter, from the cross to the empty tomb and beyond, if that first Easter could be described in one word, it might be surprise. Just take the cross. The disciples, the followers of Jesus, they had given up everything to follow him. They'd given up their reputation, their jobs, their families, their safety, their hope, their future to follow Jesus. And then he was nailed to a cross. The shameful Roman form of execution reserved for common criminals. And biblical scholar N.T. Wright said, The crucifixion of Jesus was the end of all the disciples' hopes. Nobody dreamed of saying, oh, that's all right, he'll be back in a few days. What they said was, we had hoped he was the one who would redeem Israel. We had hoped he was the one. And that hope, like Michael and Katie just sang about, was shattered at the cross. The game was over. The team these guys had played on for all those years was declared the loser. Kind of like Cubs fans feel every season. <laughs> they didn't know at that point in time that Jesus had to conquer death by dying himself. They had no sense that the perfect Passover lamb had just been sacrificed for human sin. They had no real sense of a resurrection in the next days. They were simply shocked at what had just happened, sad at the loss of their friend and rabbi, and frankly, terrified for their lives because they were associated with Jesus. Can you imagine their hopelessness on that day? Their sense that everything they had sacrificed for had all been a waste. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever had a moment in your life where everything you had worked for, everything you had sacrificed for or poured your life into, was just gone? My daughter Tracy played college softball, and like most college athletes, her career was preceded by years and years of practice and travel teams and hard work and sacrifice, and that was just for Chuck and me. Not even talking about Tracy yet. And Tracy's college team spent two weeks in Florida each spring kicking off their season. And Tracy was a walk-on, so she was finally earning her spot in the lineup her junior year. The stars were aligned. This was going to be her season. And so our whole family went to Florida to cheer her on. My dad, her lifelong coach. My mom, her lifelong scorekeeper. When during a routine play in the very first week of her season, as she planted her foot just a bit wrong on first base, she tore her ankle to shreds. Ooh, that's not the ankle, that's me. (laughs) There you go. So after learning that the ankle was broken and her season was over, the wave of emotion that washed over Tracy and then washed over the rest of us was hopelessness. You know that sense that it was all kind of just lost, All her hard work and sacrifice and hoped-for glory was shattered, just like her ankle. This is what Jesus' followers felt like a million times over at the cross. And then this happened. And I'm going to read from a different gospel than Ed read from. This is from the Gospel of Luke. On the first day of the week... Very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They were going to anoint a dead body, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. And in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, Greatest question ever asked in human history. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. And he sent the women to tell the disciples. And this is what we read then in verse 9. When they came back from the tomb, they told all those these things to the eleven and to all the others. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. But they did not believe the women, because their words seemed to them like nonsense. You see, women in Jesus' day were considered so feeble-minded, they could not even testify as witnesses in the courtroom. But God here says, surprise, I pick women as my very first witnesses to the resurrection. I made women, I trust women, I love that about God. To say that Jesus' followers were were surprised by the empty tomb and Jesus' bodily resurrection would be an extreme understatement. You see, in Jesus' day... Except for the Jewish people, no one believed that dead people would ever rise again. And the Jewish people did not believe that anyone would be resurrected all by themselves. They believed in what was called an eventual, a general resurrection that God would make happen at the very end of days when he made all things right. So the disciples simply had no picture in their mind, no sense that would cause them to expect the bodily resurrection of Jesus and yet in the midst of all of their hopelessness here was jesus the one they had watched die in a body that was strange and it was different but it was very much his body nonetheless look how luke writes about it later in chapter 24 jesus is appearing to the disciples and he says to them look at my hands and my feet It is I myself touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have And when he said this he showed them his hands and feet And while and and while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement He asked them the second greatest question ever asked in human history. Do you have anything here to eat? Don't you just love that and they gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it And he ate it in their presence. They could touch his body. He showed them the scars on his hands. He asked for food and he ate some fish. He was dead and now he was very much alive and among them. And they were simply shocked and amazed. And the only way that I can even remotely try to grasp the emotion they felt that Easter morning is to flash back to Florida, now a year later, and Tracy's ankle has healed. She's a senior this year, but she's missed her entire junior season with the ankle injury. So no one knows what's going to happen. And and yet I had learned through experience to never count God or Tracy out. So we're watching the final game down in Florida that season, one of the last games we'd ever get to watch Tracy play. And her team is in the final inning, and they're down by one run. They're the home team, so this is the last chance for them to win this game. And there are two outs, and the bases are loaded. And the team needs a hit to keep them alive and even give them a chance to win. And Tracy's up to bat. The coach has every reason to pinch hit for her. Because Tracy was what's called a slapper in softball. And a slapper is a really fast kid. And what they do is they bat left-handed, even though they're right-handed players. Because it puts them that much closer to first base. And as and, and they run toward first as they hit the ball, which makes them look a bit like they're slapping. And what usually happens is the slapper hits the ball into the infield and they're safe at first before the defense can even touch the ball. It's very hard to defend against. But in a bases loaded situation with two outs, what you want is not a slapper. What you want is a big gun who can knock the ball out of the infield. The coach has every right to pinch hit for my kid, but he didn't. So now she's up. And she has two strikes on her. She's about to kill her mother. And then this happens. Tracy crushes the ball over the third baseman's head, scores the tying run, setting up her team to win the game. And I look over and I see my parents with their arms raised in victory and my husband Chuck with his huge muscular arms raised in victory. He paid me to say that. Five bucks. And I look at first base and there's my daughter with a big grin on her face I'm behind the other team's dugout where I was squeezing my eyes shut in a mixture of fear and prayer And then when I saw her get that hit I started yelling at these freshman dads. That's my daughter That's my daughter, and I'm sure they were thinking thank God Tracy's graduating so we can get rid of this wing nut Now I know I know that softball and the resurrection of Jesus Christ are about as far apart in importance as humanly possible. But in that moment, I sensed God whisper to me, pay attention to this feeling. Do you remember that hopelessness you felt a year ago when you believed it was all over? And now she gets to feel this And now you, your parents, get to feel this? This is the tiniest taste of what it was like for my followers when I rolled away that stone, when I dropped my grave clothes and my redeemed, renewed, glorious, incorruptible body walked out of the tomb. Everything my followers thought they had lost, all those years they thought were wasted, all the pain and the suffering they endured, was made right in one shining moment. God specializes in bringing hope into our most hopeless places. God specializes in making shattered things whole. God specializes in bringing dead things back to life. And so if you are here this morning and you have a place of hopelessness in your life or some part of your life that feels shattered or even dead, I want to encourage you to take that thing and place it into the hands of God and then watch for him to work. Watch for him to use the same power he used to raise Jesus from the dead, to bring your dead places back to life and to bring hope into your places of your greatest hopelessness because that is what God does. Easter. Is marked by surprise first the cross then the empty tomb and Jesus resurrection and then grace the disciples were surprised by amazing grace because up until the time of Jesus religion was mainly about human beings working really hard to try to earn their way or work their way to God But through Jesus, we finally are told the real story. We realize it is not we who find our way to God, but it is God who finds his way to us. And he finds his way to us in spite of ourselves. This is the beautiful surprise of grace. I mean, just look at Thomas, the story that Ed read. Thomas did everything wrong, and he did it wrong right away. I mean, Christians are supposed to be people of great faith. And Thomas lacked faith immediately. He doubted the news that Jesus was back. He said, you know what? Listen, you let me, you bring me the Jesus where I can put my hands into the nail scars of his hand and put my hand in in his side where they pierced him. You bring me that Jesus alive and kicking and then I'll believe. And Jesus doesn't condemn him. Jesus doesn't shame Thomas. In fact, I think when he reveals himself to Thomas, he speaks to him in great tenderness. And he says to him, Thomas, it's okay. I get it. Put your hands here. Put your hands here. And Thomas falls on his knees and he whispers, my Lord and my God. One of my favorite writers said, Thomas is called the twin in the New Testament. And if you want to know who the other twin is, I can tell you, I am the other twin. And unless I miss my guess, so are all of you. Because we doubt too. And if you are here this morning and you're curious about Jesus, but you, you have some doubts... Or if you've been a lifelong follower of Jesus, but you still face moments of real doubt. Jesus offers his hands and his side to all of us twins of Thomas. And he says to us, it's okay. Because my grace is bigger than your doubt. And then there's Peter. I love Peter because he said stuff he wishes he never said. He was the first one to just blurt out, you are the Messiah, Jesus. You are the Son of God. And he was the one who looked Jesus in the face on the night he was betrayed. And he said, I will never deny that I know you. And then poor Peter did it not once, but three times in a row. He denied he knew Jesus to save his own tail. Can you imagine Peter's shame? I mean, it is one thing to deny Jesus, watch him die, and then know that you have to live the rest of your life with that failure. But it is another thing entirely to deny Jesus, watch him die, and then to have to face the idea that he's back. Can you imagine Peter's shame? And I believe this is why in the Gospel of Mark, when Mark tells his story of the resurrection, he lets us know that the angel who appeared to the women at the tomb said to them, you go tell Jesus' disciples and Peter that he's alive. And I believe the angel said that because Jesus wanted Peter to know, you're still my friend. I forgive you. Your denial of me at my moment of greatest need is not bigger than my grace. The grace of Jesus was bigger than Thomas's doubt. It was bigger than Peter's denial. And I want to just ask a question this morning. Could it possibly be that the grace of Jesus, the amazing grace of Jesus is bigger than your doubts and denials and my doubts and denials too? The surprise of Easter is that it is. Grace, the greatest power on earth, is always bigger than our sin and failure. Always. The cross, the empty tomb, Jesus' grace, and the surprises now can continue for those who follow Christ in this life and into eternity. One writer said God's best name is Surprise. But we have, so many of us, lost our capacity to be surprised at God. We have lost our capacity for wonder, for amazement. And yet God is everywhere, every day, offering us glimpses of his grace and his mercy and his power and his truth and his beauty. If we would just wake up from our stupor if we would just come out of our boredom with life, if we would look up from our phones once in a while and look into the eyes of the people that God has put in our path, our whole lives, if we allow them to be, can be one moment of surprise after another. And don't hear me wrong. We will face pain, loss, fear in this world. We will always have an ache in our soul, a hole in our heart. But as C.S. Lewis said, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. And that is the glory of the Easter message. Through Christ, the doorway to that other world has been blown wide open. And like Andrew spoke to start our service, this world will tell us, this life is all there is. This body is all you get. This broken, fallen, dying, decaying situation we're all in is as good as it gets. But I say no. The heartbeat of the resurrected Jesus continues to beat in the human soul. And it says to us, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. There is something bigger and better and brighter and bolder that you were originally created for. And through Christ, there is hope beyond the grave. There is something more. And it is everything that you could ever hope for and more that you could ever imagine. This is the message of the Christian faith. As Andrew said, death's end. Gets its start in jesus And therefore The surprises aren't going to end at death See so much of what we have been told about heaven is just bunk If you picture heaven as an eternal church service or the convention of angels in white gowns sitting on clouds and playing Elevator music on their harps until the end of time you may find yourself less than inspired Listen, the scriptures are clear. Our bodies will be resurrected in the same manner Jesus' body was resurrected. In Paul's great letter to the church at Rome, he says, If we have been united with him in a death like his, he's referring to the symbolic death of baptism, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. John says, in 1 John 3, verse 2, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. You see, the Christian doctrine of the resurrection does not mean gowns and wings and harps. It means, as Tim Keller says, that we do not merely receive a consolation for the life we have lost when we die, but we receive a restoration of it. We not only get the bodies and lives we had, but we get the bodies and lives we wished for but never received. We get a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a renewed, material world. That is what Easter means. So we do not need to be afraid. The surprises on the other side of the grave are more glorious than we can even imagine. The final ultimate surprise for all who are in Christ will be something like what C.S. Lewis describes in the final chapter of his Chronicles of Narnia series, when we learn that the four children who discovered this world of Narnia through the wardrobe in their uncle's house and who developed this relationship with Aslan, the lion, the Jesus figure in the story, we learn those children and their parents have died. And this is how Lewis ends the story. There was a railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. And as Aslan spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they lived happily ever after ever. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever in which every chapter is better than the one before my friends in christ and through christ and because of christ and with christ the surprises will continue and will never dull and will last for all eternity christ has died christ is risen and christ will come again and we will be surprised amen let's pray God, we so forget what a surprise the whole Easter story must have been to your followers. We read it over and over each year and we even can become bored with it. God, thank you for reminding us afresh this morning that the cross was a shock that the empty tomb was beyond the disciples' wildest dreams, that your grace is stronger than all of our failure, and that the surprises of life in you can continue now and into all eternity. We're so grateful, God, and we're going to continue to worship you for who you are. Amen.